You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A universe of Hollywood storytelling and intrigue awaits you now. Unlock the secret history of Hollywood by going to patreon.com slash attaboysecret or follow the link in the show notes of this episode. It was November 10th, 1924. The sun was still struggling to rise on State Street in Chicago and without the heat of an afternoon to fight it off. A November morning frost had begun to creep in at the edges of the storefront windows. At number 736, Schofield's flower shop, the door was swept open, sending the bell above it into hysterics. In the back room, the florist, Dean O'Banion, looked up to see three men wearing dark overcoats and grins. O'Banion clipped the last of the chrysanthemums before him and walked into the shop with a smile. Frankie, he said, I was just working on your order. That's what I love about you, Dean, replied the heavy-set man at the front of the group. You commit to a job and look at you. Bright and early and getting down to business. How are you? O'Banion glanced at the two men behind Frankie Yale, John Scalisi and Albert Anselmi, the two most feared hitmen in the Chicago outfit, who each glanced around the shop. Frankie Yale followed his eyes and laughed. (laughs) I gotta have protection these days. You know how it is. I know how it is, said O'Banion. There was a pistol beneath the cash drawer. Two steps and it'd be in his hand. Two steps was quite the distance, though. So let me see him, said Yale. Where are they? They're in the back room. And they're like I wanted? Just the way you asked for. Just wait till you see these flowers, grinned Yale, slapping Scalise's arm. Flowers in the shape of Merlot's name, all spelled out in flowers. Mike Merlot, the head of the Unione Siciliana National Union, a major front for the Mafia, had succumbed to cancer two days earlier, and Gangland was officially in mourning. So I'm excited to see him, said Yale. Are they through there? Can I, can I, can I see him? O'Banion wondered if he could get to the door. Sure, Frankie, come on through. He would show them into the back room, and as they passed through the doorway, he would quickly close it behind them. If he timed it correctly, he could buy a few seconds, and that was all he needed to get out onto the street. The three men stepped forward, and as they did, Frankie Yale held out his hand. Without thinking, O'Banion took it and immediately felt a bolt of pain as Yale's large hand clamped tightly around his own and began to crush his flesh. 
The abrupt pain caught him off guard and before he knew it, Yale had twisted sharply and his wrist had cracked. Dropping to his knees, O'Banion saw Scalise and Anselmi circling around Frankie Yale, drawing snub-nosed pistols from beneath their coats. O'Banion looked up at Frankie Yale, who spat on his face. This is from Johnny Torrio, hissed Yale. Scalise and Anselmi's guns each roared twice. Two bullets sank into O'Banion's chest, and two more tore open his neck. He fell face first onto the cold, tiled floor and tried to breathe through a shredded throat, watching Yale's shoes as they turned and hurried towards the shop door. The last thing Dino Banyan heard was the crack of a gun once more and a torturous agony in the back of his head that lasted for a fragment of a moment. The Northside gang had lost their boss, but if the Southside gang thought they'd scored a victory, then they were very wrong. Stepping up to take his place was a dark-eyed giant named Jaime Weiss, who stared grimly down at the disfigured face of Dean O'Banion, his friend since childhood, and quietly swore to seek a bloody, and vicious revenge. Vice had long been renowned as the most vicious of the Northside killers, murdering without pity anyone who crossed their operations. Along with several dozen Northsiders, Vice had been the man who'd ferreted out a mole in their booze smuggling operations. A man named Vizhnevsky, who'd arranged to have a shipment of Northsider hooch hijacked en route from Canada. Weiss invited Vizhnevsky for a drive to take in the scenic delights of Lake Michigan. The two men hopped in a car, and several hours later, Weiss returned alone. Vizhnevsky was never found. In May of 1923, O'Banion and one of his lieutenants, Nails Morton, had been horse riding. When Morton's animal went berserk, throwing Morton to the ground and savagely trampling him to death. When Weiss heard the news, he drove to the stables, threw a fistful of money at the horse's owner, then dragged the animal to the spot where it had killed Nails Morton and shot the creature four times in the skull, leaving it to die on the gravel. In 1920, Weiss had shot his own brother after a minor argument about cash. Reporters, always on the lookout for photographs of Chicago's crime lords, would have no difficulty in persuading flamboyant Southsider Al Capone for a shot. But when they approached Weiss, he would glare at them and growl, You take a picture of me, I'll shoot you in the face right here, right now. The rampage of revenge for the O'Banion killing began 12 days later, when Weiss and his right-hand men, George Bugs Moran and Vincent the Schemer Drucci, leapt from their car as Johnny Torrio was arriving home from a shopping trip with his wife, Anna. The gang opened fire with shotguns and pistols as Torrio's bodyguards, caught off guard, fired back doing their best to bundle their boss to safety as Vice and his men walked calmly at them, 
their bullets shredding the bodywork of Torio's vehicle and hacking the exterior of Torio's townhouse to pieces in a hail of smoke and ash. Anna, screaming and soaked in the blood of Torio's bodyguards, ran into the house and called the police. Drucci and Moran walked calmly to the crawling bodyguards and emptied the last of their pistols into the men's heads. Torio dragged himself towards the house with one arm. His jaw had imploded, having been smashed by shotgun fire. His groin had been torn open. His right lung had been ruptured, and several more bullets were currently sizzling away in his legs and abdomen. He felt a crushing weight on his limp leg and looked back to see Vice grinding a heel into him. They locked eyes for a moment, and then Weiss raised the pistol and pointed it between Torio's eyes. In the distance, Torio could hear the approaching scream of a police siren. He clamped shut his eyes. The sound of a gun's hammer striking an empty shell. Torio opened his eyes and saw Vice pulling the trigger again and again, hoping for one last live round to explode. The sirens were growing nearer now. Vice cursed and spat, then crouched down and began to pistol whip Torio, smashing his nose and cheek with crazed brutality, until Torio could no longer feel the pain in his jaw. Down he sank into an endless black occasionally broken by the momentary images of Jaime Weiss, soaked in Torrio's own black blood, being dragged away by his men, and the deafening arrival of police cars. A few months later, a partially recovered Johnny Torrio called his number two, Al Capone, and asked him to come to a meeting. Torrio was not a stupid man. He knew that the assassination of Dean O'Banion had meant signing a contract on his own head, a contract that would be fulfilled one day, no matter how much time and how many miles he put between himself and the Northsiders. Capone arrived to find an exhausted and frightened man, barely able to speak. Wearily, Torrio told Capone that he was quitting the rackets and fleeing abroad to Italy. The South Side operation, known as the Chicago Outfit, was his. Al Capone had just become boss of the largest mob in Chicago. Vice struck next at kingpin Angelo Jenner, known as Bloody Angelo, a longtime cohort of Torrio and Capone. Routing him from his hideout, the Northsiders pursued him relentlessly in a high-speed car chase, where Weiss hung out of his car window, emptying his guns into Jenner's car as Bugs Moran reloaded for him, until finally, the bullet found its mark. Jenner, injured, lost control of the car and careered into a lamppost. As he lay broken in the wreckage, Weiss and Moran appeared and unloaded several more bullets into his chest. 
With open warfare now declared between the Northsiders and the Southsiders, the new head of the Chicago outfit, Al Capone, began to put together a plan for striking back against Vice and his mob. Daily meetings were held at the Hawthorne Hotel in Cicero, Capone's headquarters, owned by his best friend Theodore Anton. He arrived there for lunch one afternoon and was seated quietly with his bodyguard, Frank Rio, when a black car suddenly swung up in front of the window. Leaping from the vehicle, a man wearing a handkerchief around his jaw produced a Tommy gun and began to spray the hotel's window with gunfire. Rio instinctively pushed Capone to the floor and drew his own weapon. The innocent patrons who'd been lunching around Capone began to scream and scramble for their lives. But after a few moments, Capone and Rio frowned at each other. Despite the hammering of the machine gun outside, bullets did not seem to be flying through the air above them. Cautiously, they raised their heads above the table they were using for cover and watched the gunman leap back into the car. The hotel around them was completely undamaged. A gang of Capone's heavies emerged from around the restaurant and ran to the main doors, their guns drawn. Something stinks here, mumbled Capone, who watched as his men burst through the doors and opened fire after the departing car. They were using blanks, said Rio. Why? The last of the restaurant's diners escaped from the door and ran to safety, as Capone suddenly heard a low growling. The sound was almost like the dim chaos of a beehive, and it seemed to be growing. I don't get it, said Rio, turning to his boss. Why would they fire blanks at us? The growling became a dizzy roar. Capone looked around at the empty restaurant and then at his men, still grouped outside and scanning the horizon for the gun car. They were emptying the place, Capone said quietly. They wanted our guys out there. Capone grabbed Rio by the lapel and screamed, Get them inside! The men outside suddenly turned to see something and cried in panic. The glasses on the tables began to shake against the silverware as the low roaring took form. A bullet was fired, followed by the snapping of more, as Capone's men began to dive back into the hotel restaurant, scrambling to cover. Eight large cars thundered into view, each carrying six gunmen, who jumped down and began to spray the Hawthorne with a mass of boiling bullets that ate the Hawthorne Hotel almost instantly. Capone crawled across the floor on his belly, looking up now and then to see his men falling one by one, unable to withstand the onslaught. Each time he blinked up at the room, he saw the air thick with bullets, a deafening storm of scorching fire that consumed lamps, plates and tables, that kicked up the silverware like tiddlywinks and that turned the walls around him to it was almost five minutes later when the attack finally stopped. 
Capone looked up to see a lone gunman in a khaki army shirt and overalls kick open the remains of the door and empty the contents of a full machine gun into the disintegrated room before shrieking in joy and leaping into the cavalcade of vehicles that screamed away into the city. Shaken to his core, Capone called peace talks with Weiss and Moran on the basis that the hit on O'Banion had been ordered by Torrio and he was now gone. Weiss and Moran arrived to the meeting and stared blankly into Capone's eyes as he attempted to talk the men around. Weiss, in particular, terrified Capone with his immense build and cold, dark stare. Weiss was a stone killer born to raise hell, and once he set his mind to something, no force on earth could change that. Capone later admitted that throughout his entire life, he was afraid of no man, except Jaime Weiss. You want peace, said Weiss, when Capone had finished talking. You send me the hearts of Scalise and Anselmi, and you can have your peace. Capone rose from his chair and locked eyes with Weiss. I'm not throwing those boys to the dogs, he said. They were following Torrio's orders. Weiss glanced at Moran and grinned, then looked back at Capone. Very slowly, he raised his hand, and making the shape of a pistol, fired an imaginary bullet at Capone's forehead. Capone watched as they turned their backs on him and walked out of the room. It was almost a minute before he exhaled and shivered. A few hours later, Capone received the news that his closest friend, Theodore Anton, the man that owned the Hawthorne Hotel, had disappeared. His blood-soaked coat was discovered beneath the Seeker Bridge, and his boots, half-sunk into damp sand, were found a few yards away. Anton's body, or what was left of it, was located a short while later, in a shallow grave in Burham. He'd been shot twice through the left eye, and his body had been doused in petrol and set alight. He'd been placed headfirst into a bag of quicklime, and when he was removed from it, there were barely any facial features left to identify. The ring finger from his left hand was missing, no doubt severed by the killers to get at the diamond ring that Anton always wore. When Capone received the news of his friend's death, he cried like a baby. A week later, Tommy Rossi, Capone's driver, was snatched by the Northsiders. They dragged him by the heels from their car down a flight of stone steps and bound him to a chair. For more than four hours, a team of seven men beat him with rods and burned his face with cigarettes before they'd even asked him a single question. When finally this torture was brought to a close, Rossi wearily looked up through his one remaining swollen eye to see Jaime Weiss slowly emerge from the darkness, removing his coat and rolling up his sleeves. In his hand, 
was a rusty ice pick. I want it all, he growled. Capone's movements day to day. Weekend haunts. Names of girlfriends. The name of the driver who picks his boy up from school. I want his bookmaker. His tailor's opening hours. And his mother-in-law's address. With a brisk swipe, Vice raised the pig and thumped it down with a crack into Rossi's shoulder, driving it through the muscle with such force that the ropes attaching Rossi to his chair groaned from the effort of keeping him there. Rossi screamed in pain and was silenced by Vice's fist. I want it all, he growled again. Go to hell, Rossi whispered. Vice shrugged, pulled his gun, and fired twice into Rossi's eyes. His decomposed body was found much later, crammed into a disused water cistern. It was an icy October afternoon when Vice and his men arrived at Superior Street. They rounded the corner to State Street, blew warm breath into their hands, and waited for the cars to pass so that they could cross the Schofield's flower shop, the scene of O'Banion's slaying, and still the headquarters for the Northside gang. They were halfway across the road when the blind in the first-floor apartment in front of them leapt up with a jolt to reveal a mounted machine gun which began to spit fire at the group. Vice and several of his men fell as they drew their guns, torn to bloody pieces by the scalding blitz of gunfire, and the men that shrank to terrified cover were exterminated by two more gunmen who appeared from a doorway wielding sawn-off shotguns. Within just one minute, State Street had been varnished by the warm blood of Jaime Weiss and his men, and Al Capone had removed the only man on earth that scared him. But astonishingly, the war between Al Capone's South Side outfit and the North Side gang, now led by George Bugs Moran and Vincent the Schemer Drucci, had only just begun in earnest. The citywide conflict that was soon to change the face of American organized crime forever was about to earn its name, the Bootleg Battle of the Marne. But this was a war that would extend past the city limits of Chicago. The bootleg Battle of the Marne would soon be felt on the bustling, sophisticated streets of Broadway, in the sleepy farming towns of Colorado and Nebraska, throughout the mining villages of northern England, and on through the cultivated corners of Europe to the ancient eastern cities of Asia. Indeed, wherever a cinema screen could be found. The Mafia was about to go to the movies. Despite the fact that he was one of the most powerful men in the movie business, Harry Warner was content to sit the glamorous life out. (laughs) 
functions, he would rarely take a seat at the top table, preferring instead to share a table with the stressed mid-level executives who made the Warner Cogs grind. His suits were sharp and smart, but never the most expensive in the shop. And although he could have inconsequently bedded many of the most sensual beauties in the industry due to his position, he never succumbed to their advances. Indeed, he positively shied away from the entrancing, exotic creatures that he marketed wholesale to movie audiences. Happiness for Harry Warner was a productive day at the office, a brief ride home in a warm car, and a quiet dinner with his family. However, he was rarely granted more than two of these three wishes every day. Despite his almost godlike status in the mercurial world of business, when he arrived home from work, he was simply Pop, the smiling, slightly weary breadwinner who kissed his wife, Ray, on the cheek and sank into a chair to relax while the jubilant screams of his children rang around the house. Family meals were part-time Jewish, much like Harry Warner and his household. Blessings would be given, but always briefly, unless some special occasion called for a lengthier ceremony. Passover meant that the gold-lacquered plates would be set, along with the finest crystal wine glasses. Harry would raise his hands and read from the cedar ritual, holding up a tray bearing three pieces of matzo bread. This is the bread of affliction that our fathers ate in the land of Egypt, he would begin. The family would sit patiently as Harry continued, trying to ignore the growling in their stomachs and the delicate aromas from the kitchen. Until finally, when Harry would reach somewhere around page 10, Ray would interrupt with an agitated, That's enough, Harry, let's eat. There was no such thing as a quiet meal in Harry Warner's house. Betty and Lita, the youngest at the table, would chatter loudly flicking their vegetables at each other and screaming in delight. Now and then, Ray would notice and wave for them to stop before rejoining the ongoing battle against Doris and Lewis, which inevitably raged between mouthfuls of food. The teenage Doris's crimes were generally misdemeanors. She was growing up too fast. Her circle of male admirers were a little too attentive. The hemlines of her skirts were a little too high. The makeup was being applied a little too often. Lewis's transgressions were altogether more irritating. Your phonograph is driving me crazy, cried Ray. I thought you liked my music, he replied. I do like your music. I just don't like the volume of your music. I can't dance to it if it's too quiet, he said. Your dancing is driving me crazy too, said Ray. I thought you liked my dance. I do like your dancing. I just don't like the volume of your dancing. And so it went. Harry would watch the argument being tossed back and forth across the table like a tennis match, interjecting now and then with a sharp, Lewis, you need to respect your mother, while Doris would look for a gap and fire off a sortie of comments designed to add a little water to the gasoline fire, sending the flames higher and hotter until Harry's fist would rise and fall, clattering the silverware and shocking the diners into silence. Mealtimes can be pretty tense, said Betty Warner. Because of the squabbles, it was hard to enjoy our chef's wonderfully prepared meals. Second. 
The most important thing in Harry and Ray's life was Lewis, said Betty Warner. He was six foot one, very handsome, dark hair and eyes, long dark lashes, a strong nose, smart, full of fun and extremely sexy. He was, of course, my hero and protector. Lewis always invited his friends, young high school kids from Worcester Academy and later college friends from Columbia University to the house. They took me out to football and hockey games, the proms. I always had these gorgeous guys, these beautiful hunks of men around me. I was their mascot. With Lewis around, the house was always a hubbub. Music on the phonograph, someone playing the piano, a movie in the projection room. I remember Dick Powell, Joan Blondell, Ruby Keeler and Al Jolson coming over to the house some evenings. The place was a party from morning until night, all week long. It just never stopped. Harry didn't care for the noise, but Mother loved it. She loved the kids, the fun, and the life they brought to the family. Occasionally, to escape the noisy jungle of their crowded home, Harry would dutifully escort Ray to the opera, where she leaned forward in their private box, thrilled at the evening's entertainment, while Harry slept in his gilded chair padded with red velvet cushions. Sleep had come a little easier to Harry Warner since his plans for Lewis had begun to work out. By now, the fractured relationship between himself and Jack was common knowledge. On one side, the dutiful Harry, calm and well-respected, and wearing his social conscience on his sleeve like pageantry. On the other, Jack Warner and his fast cars, his fast girls, his bad jokes, his long lunches, and that smile. The one that just barely hid that cruel center. In Harry's darkest dreams, he saw his life's work rotted from the inside. A pail of purest milk, spoiled by a single drop of blood that spread outwards with nauseating inevitability. A picture of Jack ruling atop the kingdom they'd created and killing it from the inside out. That was why it was so important that Lewis, and not Jack, should be the heir to the Warner throne. Lewis, fresh and idealistic, unspoiled and brimming with youthful energy and a willingness to fight, if need be, the dormant dragon in their bosom. It helped no end that the movie business seemed to come naturally to Lewis. Shadowing his father at the office, Lewis began to interject at business meetings, generally thinking of solutions to problems that were surprisingly creative and brilliantly conceived. Spurred on by his son's natural business acumen, Harry decided to put Lewis in charge of the many music publishing companies he'd been buying up. By the end of 1930, Lewis and Edwin Morris, son of the Warner General Manager Sam Morris, had turned these disparate parts into a powerhouse music corporation, turning out some colossal hits and generating a huge income for the Warner treasure chest. A trade publication at the time reported that Lewis Warner and Edwin Morris have startled and stunned the old birds in the music world by their clever manipulations and by their youthful, up-to-date ideas and methods of conducting their business. They are wonderful fellows, great boys, business boys, boys with vim and vigor, 
likable boys, in fact, lovable boys. Boys who have not been spoiled by money, boys who are not conceited, and boys who are democratic. The wonderful expressions regarding Lewis and Edwin are duplicates of the same expressions that were always said about their fathers. Harry Warner was alone in his study when he read the piece. Silently, he placed the paper carefully in his desk drawer, then walked through the house, gingerly investigating each room, until he found Lewis seated at the dining table, lit by a small lamp he'd borrowed from the sideboard. Harry leaned on the doorframe and regarded his son. His glasses were perched on the very end of his distinctive Warner nose, and the sleeves of his shirt were rolled up over his elbows. His head was propped up by his left hand, and his right held an apple which had been bitten just once, some time ago. The flesh inside turned from white to salty golden. Before him on the table were spread a dozen or so sheets of paper, I didn't realize the studio had so many departments, said Lewis without looking up. Marketing, distribution, sound, a subdivision of technical, in itself a subdivision. Acquisition, payroll, you have a payroll department? Surely that's just some little old lady called Myrtle who puts dollar bills into envelopes. He looked up at his father and grinned. Harry tilted his head to one side and squinted wearing an expression somewhere between mystery and happiness. What's up, said Lewis. I just wanted to come find you, said Harry, putting his hands into his pockets and walking slowly around the table towards his son. Something up? Harry shook his head. I just wanted to come find you, to tell you that, that I'm so proud of you, Lewis. Thanks, Dad. So Goddamn proud, son. Harry leaned down and kissed the top of his son's head, then clapped his shoulder. You read that piece, I guess. Cost me a hundred bucks in bribes. Harry laughed. Well, it was money well spent. It suddenly fooled me. How's the face? Lewis groaned. A week before, a painfully infected wisdom tooth had been removed and the perpetual ache at the back of his jaw seemed to grow hotter every day. I'm bearing up. Well, don't stay up too late, son. You need a rest. Harry began to walk back to the door. Dad? Lewis smoothed back his hair and swallowed. I, um, I was uh, wondering if I could bring a friend to dinner tomorrow night. Sure, son. Your friends are always welcome. Just make sure your mother knows so she can arrange an extra place. Who is he? Uh, actually, it's, um, it's a she. Harry raised his eyebrows. He walked to the table, drew out a chair, and sat down. Do I know her? In point of fact, you do. Harry mentally scanned his address book for friends with daughters around Lewis's age, but came up empty. And her name? Joni, he said. Joan, I mean. Uh, Joan Blondell. Harry sighed. I was kind of hoping we wouldn't have to have this conversation, son. She's a sweet kid, Dad. And you'll be her boss in a few months' time, said Harry. What do you mean? I'm sending you to Hollywood. 
I want you at the studio. The music division's in good shape now, so I want you to go repeat the magic in California. Produce a few movies, get a feel for the machinery. You'll be working under your Uncle Jack. Lewis frowned. And you want that? Jack's one of life's larger schmugeggies, but he knows the picture business. And, uh, and what about Joni? Harry winced. You know who else screws the actresses? Your Uncle Jack. Dad. It's not good business, son. You go to Hollywood and people will say that she's only getting parts because she's stooping the boss's boy. The other girls will hate her for it, and it won't be long before they're knocking on your door in the dead of night, wanting a better part in a better film. Is that what you want? You mean a line of twenty-year-old glamour girls will be outside my office wanting to screw me every night? Christ, that's... That's awful. Okay, okay. I just want you to think about it. Will you do that for me? Tell you what, son, you've worked hard. You need a vacation. Take some time away. Get some sun. Relax. Think things over. I could do with some sun. Sure you could do with some sun. You look like a milk gum. We need to check it's okay with your doctor first, though. My jaw's fine. Stop worrying, old man. Harry stood and nodded, mentally swatting away the sudden, faint image of Sam that fluttered across his mind. On the other side of the country, another Warner son was having a conversation with his father. Jack Warner's legs, garbed in white canvas, were resting on his desk. At their side, a telephone was ringing. I can't believe this, he said. You've been here one day and you're asking for a pay rise. His son, Jack Jr., shifted in his chair. Not a pay rise, Dad. I was just saying that I can't live on $15 a week. Even the messenger boys are on 18 Do you know how much running around those little pricks have to do? Sure, but how much running around do you have to do? Said Jack. Do you actually run places during your working day? In fact... I don't think I've ever seen you run anywhere. Can you run? I don't have to run all that much, no. What do you do again? I forget. I'm in the script department, Dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what's your actual job title? Assistant script clerk, said Jack Jr. Jack Warner's legs flew from his desk and he leapt up in shock. Oh, please forgive me. I've been hearing such great things about you and your work. I mean, the script clerk was having a pretty shitty time of things until you got here. Now, all the clerking he does runs like a dream and we couldn't be happier here at Warner Brothers Studios. Okay, okay, said Jack Jr. No, seriously, son. All that assistant clerk script clerking you're doing deserves a pay rise. How does a million dollars a week sound? Dad, I was only saying that the messenger boys are on $18 and I'm only on 15 And how do you get to work, Jackie? Do you ride the streetcar like those boys? No, I ride in with you. And how much do you spend on food every week, Jackie? Jack Jr. shrugged. Correct, said Jack. I pay for that, too. You go and live in some cracker box with the other messenger boys and buy your own food every day and ride the fucking streetcar to work, and you know what? I'll raise your salary to 18 bucks a week. How does that sound? Can you live on 15 a week now? The buzzer on his desk sounded. What? he called. Mervyn Leroy says he's ready for you in the screening room, came a voice. Good, said Jack. 
He leapt up from his chair and smoothed back his hair. Want to come? He asked his son. I mean, I know how precious your time is now. You're a script consultant assistant or something. Well, you're paying me, said Jack Jr. I might as well waste as much of my time as I can. They left the office to the sound of Jack shakily warbling a young man's fancy down the hall. At the screening room, Jack and Jack Jr., along with the director, Mervyn Leroy, watched the latest batch of screen tests. An Englishman who couldn't seem to keep his eyes from wandering around the camera. A large man with a handlebar moustache. And a blonde with great legs send her up sometime. These were followed by a somewhat serious-looking young man who brooded into the lens, growling his lines with a smouldering intensity. This was the guy that Leroy was the most excited about, and when the ten-minute reel was finished, he turned expectantly to Jack, only to find him wincing up at the screen. He's great, right? said Leroy. Play it again, called Jack. Kill the sound this time. A moment passed and the footage of the man flickered into life once more. Look at those fucking ears, frowned Jack. They stick out like a couple of windsocks. Honest chief, said Leroy. He's sexy enough to have all the gals in the audience eating out of his hand. I'm casting for that gangster film at the moment and he could play the part of Masaro. Mervyn, said Jack. You don't hear me so good. The guy has ears like an elephant. He'd be perfect for Little Caesar, J.L. Seriously, Merv, said Jack. You spent 500 bucks on a test of this big ape? That is 500 big ones down the toilet. Jack jumped to his feet and walked towards the door. What did you say this guy's name was? He called. Gable, shouted Leroy. Clark Gable. He'll never make it, said Jack, bursting out through the door. Mr. Leroy, said Jack Jr. as the lights came up. I was looking at Little Caesar, the script, and I just wanted to tell you that I think it's really going to be something. Thanks, kid, said Leroy. Will be if I can cast the damn thing. I was wondering, said Jack Jr., if you needed any help on set. I really want to learn. Leroy regarded the boy and chuckled. Learning the family trade, huh? That's kind of it, yeah. Well, you know what? Sure. Report to my offices tomorrow. I could always use another assistant director. You mean it? asked Jack Jr. excitedly. Yeah, sure, laughed Leroy. But don't get your hopes up too high, kid. I have 14 of them already. It was 10 a.m. the next morning when Jack Jr. arrived at Leroy's offices, a few rooms tacked onto the side of a soundstage, to find not an efficient group of executives sweatily thrashing out the difficult casting decisions, but a slouching group of 50-somethings, chewing on cigars with yellowed teeth, wearing string vests and fedoras, and playing pinochle on an upturned barrel. They looked up at Jack Jr. in his pressed suit, polished shoes and briefcase, and grimaced. Good morning, he said. My name is Jack Warner Jr. I'm Mr. Leroy's new assistant director. The men wheezed and cackled. <laughs> Ain't we all, snarled one of them. Another pointed towards Jack Jr.'s briefcase. Nice lunch pail. But despite their initial scorn, Leroy's crew soon found themselves gently charmed by this eager young boy who blushed and smiled when they insulted him. 
and who seemed determined to make it on his own terms, and without the need to hold up his family credentials at every twist in the road. For Jack Jr.'s part, he soon learned the art of dressing appropriately, and of when to listen, and when to ask questions. It wasn't long before he was a solid part of the pinochle games at the barrel. He even took to riding home on the streetcar in the evenings. My only squawk, he said later, was when one of the cameramen sent me to the camera department for a bucket of sprocket holes. The telephone at Harry Warner's bedside rang and rattled. Blinking, the clock's dial on his nightstand began to come into focus. It was just after 2 a.m. He snatched up the receiver angrily. Hello, he growled. Ray turned herself over. Whoever was calling had better have a damn good reason. She glared at Harry, hoping he'd notice her intense displeasure. Where is he? He barked. Harry, it's two in the morning, said Ray. Tell whoever it is to call you. Shh, hissed Harry with such venom that Ray felt her heart skip a beat. Harry was frozen in silhouette, and in the silence, Ray heard the low rasp of the voice on the end of the line. Harry, who is it? She said. You're scaring me. I appreciate your call, mumbled Harry. I'll be in touch within the hour. Slowly, he replaced the receiver and swung himself out of bed. Harry, she said. Harry, what's happened? He stood and slipped into his gown, then put his hands on his hips and sighed. Lewis, he said. He's sick, Ray. I have to make some calls. Lewis's Cuban vacation had begun with gusto. Accompanied by his friend, Herbie Copeland, they'd spent their days on the shores and their evenings dancing to jazz in sweaty bars. His New York doctor, hearing of Lewis's travel plans, had urged him to stay at home until his jaw had healed properly. But the thought of a few weeks of sun and girls had blinded him to medical advice, and he'd taken off anyway. A week into the party, he'd woken up with what felt like cramp in his jaw, and when he checked in the bathroom mirror, he saw that his face carried a swollen, egg-shaped carbuncle that hadn't been there yesterday. Did I get punched last night? He asked Herbie Copeland when the two men met for breakfast. Jesus, Lewis, his friend replied as he regarded the swelling. Did you hit your face on the bedpost or something? I think it's infected, Lewis replied. We'll get it seen to, replied Copeland. He shuddered slightly. Kind of puts me off my breakfast. Lewis half-heartedly asked around for a local dentist and was half-heartedly pointed towards a doorway in an alley a few streets away from his hotel. The cigar-chomping man he found there roughly clutched Lewis's jaw and grimaced at the lump, then shoved him into a wicker chair, fumbled around in a cupboard for a few minutes, then abruptly stuck a hypodermic into the swelling 
and injected into it a clear liquid. Lewis winced in pain, clutched at the arms of the chair, and tried not to kick out as the needle hit bone. When the ordeal was over, he was helped up and shown to the door, but not before being relieved of five dollars. The day was spent in fitful discomfort, not helped by the feverish heat that stretched long into the evening. By the time a cool arrived, somewhere around 9 p.m., he was exhausted from the effort of suffering and retreated to his bed, where he spent a few broken hours in sweats and cries before admitting defeat. It was just after midnight when he checked himself into a hospital. After being frowned at by grave-looking men for over an hour, he told a distressed-looking doctor to call his father, and Harry and Ray Warner were woken by a rattling telephone. The Harry Warner response was as typically efficient as ever. Within 15 minutes of the call, a private plane had been chartered, and two hours later, Lewis Warner was being flown to Miami, where he was immediately put on a train bound for New York. When he arrived, Harry watched his son hastily transported from a bawling ambulance's rear doors to the operating theater, where surgeons worked intensively for nervous hours to isolate the infection that now reached across his face and down his neck with dark, ruby fingers. Each time that Harry's resolve wavered during those heavy hours, the image of Sam would walk across his mind, and Harry would have to shake him away. The signs were hopeful. The doctors felt that they had the infection under control, despite the fact that the Cuban back-alley treatment had made things much worse. The news soothed the sleep-starved Harry and Ray, who returned home that evening, unable to conceal the fireworks in their heart. They ate a meal alone, smiling to each other, and glancing at Lewis's unoccupied chair, imagining the phonograph music, the muted thumps of dancing feet above their heads, and the constant ringing of the telephone when he returned home. The meal finished, they took each other's hands and went to bed, enjoying the first full night of rest in days. The following morning, they arrived at the hospital and were ushered into a small, hot office, where an apologetic doctor gave them the news that their son had developed pneumonia and that the situation was critical. Harry's daughter, Betty, who was 11 at the time, said, he was all bandaged up and it terrified me. I couldn't stand the idea of my beloved brother, my special dynamic brother, swathed in bandages. I didn't want to see him this way, but my mother pushed me to his bed. Hey, brat, mumbled Lewis from behind his bandages. Betty's eyes filled with tears, and she clutched her mother's waist. That's charming, chuckled Lewis. I go to all the trouble of putting on this Halloween costume, and you won't even talk to me. Say hello to your brother, snapped Ray, wiping her eyes. 
Betty looked at the bandaged man on the bed whose red eyes stared lazily at her. Hey, Brat, said Lewis. Did you see that nurse on the way in? The one with the crazy eyes. Betty nodded. I think she's kind of loopy. Do you know what she said to me? I asked her where she was from. And she said, Texas. So I said, which part? And she said, all of me. A tear leaked from Lewis's eye, and Betty began to sob, burying her face in her mother's chest. Oh, Lewis, gasped Ray, breaking down in tears. Come on, mumbled Lewis. It wasn't that bad a joke. Betty murmured a goodbye and was led whimpering from the room by Ray. When she reached the door, she glanced back at her big brother, who raised a hand ever so slightly and waved. It was the last time she ever saw him alive. On Saturday, April 5th, 1931, Lewis Warner, the bright young hope for the Warner future, succumbed to pneumonia and left his family in ruins. The blast radius of Lewis's death knocked down each member of the Harry Warner household. Betty and five-year-old Lita retreated into play, confused by the sudden silence that had gripped the house. They would arrive to dinner holding hands and seat themselves at the table, where weeping servants would bring them their meals. But the seats around them would remain unoccupied, and after eating, the two girls would wander back into the house and eventually to Betty's room, where they would change into their nightclothes and sleep in each other's arms. Seventeen-year-old Doris would disappear for days at a time. Her arrivals home were scarce, but were always heralded by a slamming door and quick steps across the polished parquet floor as she hurried to her room to change to fetch money and makeup, before fleeing the house once more to seek oblivion with her friends. One afternoon, Betty timidly entered the living room to find Ray curled up in a ball on the sofa. She had a damp washcloth over her face, Betty said, and she was crying. I sat down next to her and held her hand telling her that nothing had changed between us, even though she'd had this great loss, and even though she missed Lewis terribly, I was still there. She clutched my hand tightly. 
but she never stopped crying. I don't think ever. Ray's grief was unconditional. She attired herself in nothing but black for a full year and banned the playing of music in the house for fear of being reminded of happier days when the ceiling above them would shake to the sound of Lewis and his records and the dancing feet of his many friends. For Harry, the chaos of the business world was the only effective medicine. He would arrive daily to his building and quarantine himself in his private office. The only sign of life from behind his doors would be a murmured response when an essential phone call had to be put through or when lunch was sent in. Even Albert Warner, a stoic, brooding man at the best of times, was not admitted. Two months after Lewis's death, 17-year-old Doris woke in fright to find Harry standing over her bed in the darkness, staring down at her with a wild, somewhat hysterical expression. Daddy, she said. He reached down and grabbed her arm, roughly hauling her up. Come on, he said. Get dressed. What? Get some clothes. We're going out. He hurried from the room, and Doris, anxious for her father's state of mind, quickly threw on some clothes and followed him. They drove through a rainstorm, Harry squinting into the oncoming headlamps, and Doris clutching the door handle nervously. They were going for coffee, she assumed, somewhere small or loud, who the hell knew, to talk about things. The cars on the road began to swarm like bees. The large estates that studded the road from time to time gave way to rows of houses and then industrial buildings. Soon, the turmoil of New York City at night had grown around the car like an ivy plant. They pulled up in front of the Warner Manhattan offices and Harry ran around the car to open Doris's door. Come on, he cried through the rain. They made their way through the solemn offices, past the rows of desks bearing half-empty coffee cups and overflowing waste baskets, where life had suddenly ceased at 6pm last evening. Harry flung open his large wooden door and took Doris's soaking coat. Sit down in my chair, he said. Why are we here, Dad, she said. Sit down, Doris. It's the middle of the night, Dad. Why did we have to come here now? Sit down. She stared at his ancient, broken face and felt her eyes fill with warm tears. Slowly, she walked around his desk and sat in his chair. He walked to a large bank of filing drawers and began to throw them open, reaching in and tossing fluttering bunches of papers and ledgers onto the floor beside him. When the pile was sufficiently high, he scooped them up and cast them on the desk before Doris, who looked up at him. You're going to take Lewis's place, he said. I don't understand. I said you will learn the business. You're going to do this for me. 
You're going to do it for the family. Do you understand? Okay, Daddy. Through her despairing tears, Doris Warner listened for hours as her father explained expenditure, net profits, departmental accountancy, stared at line graphs and charts depicting revenue streams and areas of financial speculation. When she flagged, he grew more animated, pointing to the same numbers again and again, unable to comprehend his daughter's ignorance of their importance. And when 8am came, and Doris finally fell to pieces, collapsing in tattered tears and praying the ordeal would end, Harry Warner finally stopped and sank to the floor, defeated. For the first time in months, he was lucid. He looked up at his daughter, who sobbed violently on the pile of ledgers. This poor kid, who'd been hauled out of bed by her maniac of a dad, and felt himself shiver, as though woken from a nightmare. There was no replacing his son. There was no heir to his empire. That dream had died with Lewis. He winced as the New York sun blinked its way into morning through the vast bay window, then climbed wearily to his feet. Honey, he said to Doris, smoothing her hair as she cried. I'm so sorry. Let's go home. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to continue this epic story immediately, then go on over now to patreon.com slash attaboysecret or follow the link in the show notes of this episode. Hear every thrill, every drama, every heartbreak, every spellbinding moment. Unlock the secret history of Hollywood now at patreon.com slash attaboysecret or follow the link in the show notes of this episode. And thank you. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.